Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Gary Wilkerson podcast. We're thrilled to have you with us. Uh, as you've noticed, you probably noticed over the past few months, we've been looking at two different uh, elements from scripture. One is the attributes of God, and the second is the Trinity. As you study the attributes of God, you certainly understand that it kind of leads you to, a, to, to the Trinity. Uh, you can't really know God or anything really deep about him uh, unless you see him beginning to reveal himself in this form of three persons and one essence. And so uh, not long ago, uh, I was, uh, well, first it came on Instagram. I was uh, moving through Instagram and I noticed this guy, Chris Palmer, and uh, he had these Greek word studies and they were phenomenal, man. It was just like in just a short amount of time, which as you, Chris, you can probably tell, I'll get to you in a second. Uh, as you probably can tell for this introduction, like I have a hard time saying a lot in a short amount of time. Uh, I, I take a lot of time to say a little bit, but you you really, you know, you, you bring those uh, Greek words that, you know, bring things to life. Uh, and so I'd love for people to follow you on Instagram. And uh, so then I went on YouTube and listened to some of your sermons and some interviews you've done. And one of them was about the Trinity. And man, it just drove me to tears, it drove me to my knees. It's just like, God, I want to know you that way. I want to know the, the fullness of 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 how you express yourself, uh, the essence of who you are, and and not just these three separate, uh, you know, Chris, my testimony might be to you, be I kind of just experientially know the Trinity almost in three separate entities. You know, it's like, okay, now I'm going to spend some time with Jesus. You know, hold on, Father, I'll be with you a little bit later, and then maybe the Holy Spirit will come tonight and fill us, you know, and so, uh, but, to, but as you described him as his essence being one, it was phenomenal. So you're the pastor uh, up in Michigan, and you're an author and a scholar and a theologian, and we're just a real honor to have you with us today, Chris. Welcome to the Gary Wilkerson podcast. Well, Gary, it is a tremendous honor to be with you. I have, uh, as I told you before, the utmost respect for you, your family. Um, when I saw that you were following me on Instagram, I said, "Wow, he's following me." I, I ordered that, you know, for me, this was, it was a great honor, and um, to be asked to be a part of this is, is truly phenomenal. Um, and um, it's a great podcast, and just looking forward to adding to it what, what I have in me. So thank you. Thank you. Well, we're gonna, gonna appreciate that. We're gonna really try to focus on helping uh, people that, that want to get a deeper, not just an understanding, but a, a walk with God in light of the Trinity. Um, so just just out of curiosity, starting place, my first question, uh, what what stirred your interest? You, you know, knowing Greek like you do, you could have you could be studying anything. What was it that drew your uh, attention and affection to study the Trinity specifically? Why has that become a major emphasis of your pursuits? I think that perhaps this question can be answered in parts. The Trinity is something that you look at in Bible school as, oh no, this next unit is on the Trinity, right? Because you're going to have to rack your brain and it's going to be tough and it's going to be difficult. And you, the punchline is, no matter what we do, we're, we're not going to be able to wrap our brains around it. And as human beings, we like to have answers, especially a westernized culture that's very empirical. We want the answer. We can't live not having wrapped our minds around it. And so it was always this anticlimactic ending that, you know, this is the Trinity. This is what it is, but you can't understand it. And so you, you say that up front. And so there was sort of an avoidance in me about the Trinity. Yes, I accepted it. Yes, I gave lip service to it. Um, but as time rolled on and as you start to get into the text and read the text going from the old Testament unto the new Testament, what begins to happen from the old, as you move your way into the new 
you begin to see how God is revealing himself in his triune nature, especially as you get into the New Testament. Uh, and as you begin to read about redemption and the work of redemption and how all of this configures, you understand that it takes a triune God to do that. Uh, and so you become almost forced to have to look at it if you want to go to that place where you understand what God wants us to understand about himself. Um, and then what I began to realize, I come from a Pentecostal background where a lot of people preach on breakthrough. You're going to get a breakthrough. You're going to get a breakthrough. And so the substance of the message in and of itself is the breakthrough. But then it started to dawn on me, Gary, that if people truly want a breakthrough, preach the triune God, preach how God has revealed himself, preach Christology, pneumatology, and theologies with the anointing and fire and power of the Holy Spirit that comes through a clean vessel that's yielded to God. And if you, by the power of the Spirit, begin to preach that, and it has theological substance to it, what that does is it gets into the person's heart, into their being, and it creates the breakthrough that they're looking for. I mean, it's not, it's not rocket science, I don't think. When we become under when we become to wrestle with God, it leaves us the way that God likes us. And that is dependent upon him. That is trusting upon him. You know, I always say that um, what wrestling with the text does, especially this aspect of the Trinity, it's like Jacob wrestling with God. After doing that, he walks away with a limp, right? He walks away with this, I know, but I don't know. Um, the text has broken me in some way. It has created in me uh, yes, now I know more, but now I realize how much I don't know. And it places that inside of you and you become, that does tremendous work to your prayer life. It does tremendous wonders to your devotional life, the way that you relate to others, the way that you think of yourself, it really changes things in a dramatic way. And so when I begin to see that and focus upon that, it changed, it changed so much from my life, my ministry, um, and even my church began to really get hungry for theology. Because when you preach theology on fire, by the power of the spirit. You can't beat it. You just can't. Just your first few words there makes my mind go in 10 different directions for questions to ask. But let me start by saying just you, you, you threw out a phrase there, like when you were in Bible school and you started studying the Trinity, it seemed anticlimactic. Mm -hmm. uh, that was my experience as well. Like, like one of the uh, New Testament uh, survey uh, and we got on the Holy Spirit and there was a, a British, an elderly British uh, former pastor that was, uh, trying to teach us on the on theology and, and it just seemed uh, yeah it's, is that what you mean by anticlimactic it's almost like is that you know like is that yeah. all we get when we okay there's father son holy spirit they're three they're one they're they're a shamrock they're a, a light bulb you know, it just seems so like yeah god's god's like a shamrock i, I don't know if that makes me want to worship him yeah uh, is that what you mean by anticlimactic? It, yeah, exactly. It was anticlimactic and it almost seemed, so what would happen is we would go, we would have the class, we would learn three and one, three and one, three persons, one being one substance, one essence, you know, the, the one, two, threes of the doctrine of the Trinity. And then we would go to chapel right after, right? And we're in chapel and it's, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Or, or the next day, it's all about the Holy Spirit. It's all about the Holy Spirit. And it's like, well, how is, how do I integrate this in, in my life? And and then there's always the, you know, talk about Jesus, talk about Jesus, talk. And then some people are on the Father, on the Father, on the Father. And so it's like, 
you know that there's a Trinity, but it seems that some Christians really like the Holy Spirit. Some Christians really love the Father and calling him Abba or Daddy or whatever. And some Christians just preach Jesus, just preach Jesus, just preach Jesus. It's like, what do I do with all this? So you, you sort of file the Trinity in your head as three persons in one, but you pick your favorite, right? The Father's my favorite. The Son's my favorite. And so that was sort of what was the take from it um, in Bible school. But as you, as you move, as I move forward, I should say, I began to understand the sacredness of it. Uh, the power behind it, and looking into church history, you start to see that this is really what the doctors of the church, the theologians of the church, the church fathers wrestled with so that we could have and so that we could maintain this. Because after all, the doctrine of the Trinity and preserving that was what kept Christianity from becoming like other pagan religions and other pagan uh, sects at that time. And is it what distinguishes us and makes us really unique from all the other monotheistic religions of the world, Islam, Judaism, et cetera, et cetera, um, is that triune nature that we have of God. And so when God invites us to the text to discover himself, he wants us to understand that Trinity about him. And there are ways that we can do that. And in doing that, it, it, it brings us really to a place where we are humble before God and we really can honor God. I, I always, my church, you know, I, I'm not against new songs and new stuff. I always think that, you know, with, with as time goes by, there's innovation and, and there's creative expression of generations, but we always go back to singing hymns many times. I don't let a single month go by where at some point we don't sing Holy, Holy, Holy. And my favorite line in that song where it, it just drives me to tears is where you see blessed Trinity, you know, uh, that to me is powerful. I, and uh, I was in a conversation this week with a friend uh, about the Trinity, and we were talking about St. Patrick's breastplate, which really is a profound, profound prayer. Okay, you know, St. Patrick, he brought the gospel to Ireland, fourth century, I think it was. Uh, this is written in 433 AD, so fifth century, I should say. And this is how it begins. Okay, it says, I rise today through a mighty strength, the invocation of the Trinity, through belief in the threeness through confession of the oneness of the creator of creation. And then in the end, he says, I arise today through a mighty strength, invocation of the Trinity, through a belief in the threeness, confession of the oneness of the creator of creation, or just a different version of it. Which, and, and it proceeds, and there's more to it than that. But thinking of the power, I arise today through a confession of the threeness and the oneness. And so that's something that when I read that, it set a bomb off in me that, this is what the early doctors of the church, this is how they, 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 they understood God because they understood this from the text and they banged this out for us to have it. So there's something about this that I need to understand and that I need my congregation to understand. And it goes a long way. Um, and I think, and I, in my life, I've experienced understanding the Trinity in a way has a way of settling my anxieties, has a way of settling my deepest and darkest fears one friend of mine who I'm very close with told me that when he went through the darkest season of his life for three and a half years, and he began, he wrestled with depression, wrestled with anxiety, was on medications. When the spirit of God began to deal with him, it was leading him to understand that one of the only ways out of this is to understand God in his triune nature. And it was that understanding of the Trinity that really brought him out of that place of depression. Okay. And and today, that's, that's how he, he he's really preaches on the Trinity a lot. 
Um, and so what happens in our congregations is we pay a lot of lip service to the Trinity without really understanding, you know, the Trinity. Yeah. So we have, uh, I think we, we, you know, I would agree that it seems like in the church today, the common understanding of the Trinity is three persons and somehow they're one. We don't really know. We don't really want to explore that too much in depth. Um, and so there's this sort of disconnect from, uh, you know, like, so, so as in my early days, as I would read John and he's saying, you know, Jesus is saying the father and I are one, you know, I'm looking at that like, well, they're really close. They're, they're, they're good friends. They're really intimate, but not necessarily seeing it. Like I didn't have the tools or the insight or nobody had taught me that that's not friendship or relationship in the sense of, you know, that like I'm one with my wife. Uh, this is a, this is a, a, a essence and substance. Um, so, so if, if a lot of us are thinking, uh, you know, as you're talking about in Bible school, you know, thinking about the father and then the son, and then different chapel, the Holy spirit, or, or what your preference is. Um, can you take a few minutes with us and walk us through what is it that we need to know if, you know, I, I think if a lot of people are understand the oneness of the, of God, but they don't understand the Trinity, then they need to be brought to light in that. Yeah. Okay. So essentially uh, the basic essence of the Trinity is, is understanding that there are distinct persons in the Trinity. So there are three persons, but there's this term that we use or substance. Okay. And that, that includes all the nature of all that God is. Okay. So they, they have that one essence. They share that one essence. So, so three persons, the father, the son, and the spirit. Okay. And distinct in the sense of how they operate or how they function. That's the distinction. So there was the argument in the early church was always over. Well, the distinction is in the substance that maybe the son is less than the father or which was really the, the big, that was the big debate. Okay. The father was always in most cases, in most heresies seen as, okay, he's the most God, but then you have this Jesus who is a lesser God. And then the spirit, okay. Brings into the debate, how much of the spirit is he, he's an it, et cetera, et cetera. But the early church is very clear that they are of the same essence. They're of the same substance. Okay. Of, and which would they define or Michael Bird would define as of all that God is or the nature of all that he is. So they, they share that, but yet there is a, there's a differences in persons. Okay. And so that's why we say three persons, they have the same essence or the same substance as one. And the way that we divide them, we don't want to be, we don't want to divide them too much. Okay. Um, because in, for instance, the old explanation that, um, like you brought up the, there's the, the four leaf clover, or perhaps let's just say the, the, the main one is ice, water, and gas, right? But the problem with that is ice, water, and gases, they're all too different from one another. They're just two, they're different substances. And so mm -hmm. I don't think that really covers what the Trinity is. I don't, I think it defies any sort of illustration or the egg, you know, you have the egg, you have the shell, you have the the, the white and then the yolk, but it's all the same. I think, again, that's too, there's too much of a difference in those types of illustrations. Um, or you say, like, you have a four-leaf clover. We have three clovers on it, but one, but it's still, I think that's, that's too different. So there's, a, mm. there's distinctions of persons, but the same stuff is of all that God is. And in and of themselves, okay, it doesn't take the spirit plus the father plus Jesus to be God. In the four-leaf clover, it takes all. In the three-leaf clover, it takes all three clovers to be God, right? Mm -hmm. But when it comes to God, Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and the Father is God. It doesn't take all three of them to be God. Does that make sense to you? 
So the the spirit is God in himself. Jesus is God in himself. And the father is God in and of himself. Okay. So that's, we don't want to divide them too much, but at the same time, we want to recognize personhood and they share in the same substance. Wow. That, that I think the way I, where some of us might get confused with that is, you know, when you see that um, it's, it looks like a triangle mm-hmm. um, and it says, you know, God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And then there's that line between them that says the Son is not the Father, right? And the Father is not the Son. Mm-hmm. It almost seems contradictory that there, well, it, it sounds like what you're saying. And I know it's not, but, but it almost sounds like you're saying, the, well, the Father is the Son, really. And the Son is the Holy Spirit because they're one. Uh, but there, but then, then, then that that diagram says, well, they're not. So yeah. you're saying they're not in what they're not yeah, in so, way. So the father is not the son. The son is not the father. The spirit is not. So the whole the whole uh, diagram that you have right there explains you that they're unique in the way that they operate. So the way that you divide them is what the father does in redemptive history and salvation history is different from what the son does is different from what the Holy spirit does, but they are each. Okay. God. And they are one. And when the Holy spirit is doing what the, or let's say Jesus, he's, he's, uh, he's redeeming. Um, when he's doing that, um, that's, he's doing that as the person, but he's doing that still as like the father is hundred percent with him and well, mm-hmm. or, or he is, uh, it's, it's not like he kind of separates from the other two and does his thing. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they're all three doing it at the same time in a sense. Would that be correct? Yeah. So you could say, yeah, because it's almost the father's still with them. The spirit is with him. Okay. And so there's just a distinction in their functionalities that what, what they perform. So the, the son proceeds from the father. Okay. And the son is anointed by the spirit. So they're, they're one in that sense, but their functionality is just different. Does that make okay. sense? Yeah, yeah, that that makes sense. And and um, what would you say is the thing that's most missing in the triune theology in, in the church today? Would it be the oneness, or would it be understanding him as three persons, or or something else? Is there things we're missing? Yeah, you know, I think it goes back to what we were saying. At least I can only speak from my observation is that individuals like to really focus on their favorite person mm-hmm. of the Trinity. You know, and I I don't like this idea that. You know, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's all about just preach Jesus. I, I think I understand the intention of that. Um, and people that lock on to that, there's sort of an ignorance in that sense of the spirit's work or forgetfulness of the father, or there is this, well, how does the father play a role in this? And again, that's, I think, dividing it too much. Um, you know, then people say, well, should you pray to the father and the son and the Holy spirit at the same time? I think when you pray to the father, the way that Jesus prayed to the father, okay. in his incarnate state and shows creation speaking unto God, uh, the father, um, in the incarnation, I should say, um, you understand, I pray to the father because of the work of Christ through the power of the Holy spirit In doing it that way, it's Trinitarian. You're recognizing, okay. Uh, the Trinity in your prayers and, and you're, you're, you're developing a pattern to do it. So I, Maybe locking on to answer your question, maybe locking on to just one and forgetting the others or understanding that, you know, if I worship the father, I can do this because of the work of the son and I have power to do this or have right expression or the ability to praise or worship because of the work of the spirit, because the spirit, in fact, does dwell in me. So understanding that what you're doing in prayer or what you're doing in worship is a result of the Trinity and keeping that in mind instead of saying it's all about Jesus, because if there was no Trinity, 
okay, it, you, you couldn't be doing what you're doing at the moment. Expand on that. What do you, what do you mean? Like the, the, without the, what would, what would go wrong? And I heard you talk about this on one of your interviews and I loved it. Uh, and I don't know if I can express the question in a way to get you motivated to speak about it. Uh, what would be so bad about, you know, somebody that, you know, goes to church on a Sunday and the pastor saying, you know, Jesus can save you from your sin. You go like, yeah, thank you. I, I want to get saved, but never going beyond that. And you just get stuck. Uh, if we don't, if we don't know the Trinity, what, what are, what's wrong with that? What's missing? Yeah. And so again, it, it goes, so let's just go back to the, you know, to the new Testament when you see the, the, okay. As you move through the old Testament, you see that there's expressions of the Trinity. Okay. Let us make man in our image and our likeness. Okay. Let us, let us, you see these instances where perhaps in Genesis 18, I believe it is where you have what looks like an angel, but you get closer to it. You find out it's God. You see these theophanies that take place. Um, I, things that sort of point to a Trinity. Um, let us go up in the tower of Babel. Let us go down. Let's confound their languages. Okay. But then as you move through that and you start getting to the new Testament, you start seeing redemption in high gear. Now redemption taking place in the redemptive work. And so because redemption has to take place in the redemptive work, it starts disclosing the Trinity because the Trinity is behind the work of redemption. Okay. So you see the father, you see the son in this baptism, the Holy Spirit coming down. So now because redemption is in high gear, it's revealing of the Trinity who's behind that redemption. Okay. And so in the past says, well, it's all about Jesus. Yes, it is ultimately about the work of Christ on the cross, but the work of the Christ was on the cross because the son proceeds from the father, right? And the son was anointed by the spirit. So this whole work of resurrection the father raised him from the dead through the spirit. All of this takes place because of the work of the father, because of the work of the son and because of the work of the Holy spirit. So when you say, just preach Jesus, that's fine. As long as we understand what took place with the son was because there's a father and there is a spirit. Yeah. And, and if you, if you didn't, you know, if you just saw Jesus as sort of independent figure, not part of the Godhead, then he wouldn't have the power to save, right? Because he's not God. So he's just a good yeah. man, a good teacher. Yeah. Um, if, they, if we didn't have the Holy Spirit coming alongside of us, then, you know, the, the work that Jesus did would not be illuminated in our life. So, yeah. you know, I think over time we, we tend to catch, even if we've never sat down and studied the doctrine of the theology of, of the Trinity, we're going to catch it in scripture and experience like, okay, that the father did that in my life and then the Holy Spirit. But if you, if you deny them as Trinity, you're, you're really, um, you're going to find yourself falling short, I think, right, of, of all that. Yeah, God. you become, yeah, that's, I mean, that's what happened in the Pentecostal movement, right? And I think it was 1916, 1917, uh, the Pentecostal movement was really divided over the doctrine of the Trinity, and about one-third of Pentecostals at that time became oneness Pentecostals, mm-hmm. uh, and they exist in that, in that state today. No offense to the oneness Pentecostals that listen to the podcast, but they become Unitarian, and they stopped fighting for what the, the doctors of the church gave us to preserve. Uh, and just recognizing, and that was, of course, a heresy at the time, Sabellianism or modalism, which shows you that, and this goes back to what we were talking about, St. Athanasius' Creed, okay, which is the triangle. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not, okay, uh, the Son is not the Father. The distinctions in that, this was a counter against Sabellianism, which would suggest that there's different modes that Jesus has. He puts on the father hat or the God puts on the father hat, the son hat and the Holy spirit hat. So 
It's one person, one God in different modes. The church fathers rejected that. And they says, no, there are three clear, distinct persons who have the same substance of God. There's not any less God than one another. They're not any more God than one another. Jesus is not 99.999% because then what that happens is now you have a pagan religion. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you have multiple gods and polytheism that's in there. And you, we have to maintain the Shema hero or Israel, the Lord, our God is one. The apostle Paul does that. I believe in first Corinthians is it chapter eight where he takes the Shema and he expresses, I think it's first Corinthians uh, eight, six, where he expresses sort of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, in doing it by repurposing uh, the Shema. So we have to, so we keep the oneness of God. We keep it in three persons. Man, that's powerful. That that, uh, blesses my heart to hear you say that. I think that's an encouragement to a lot of us listening to what you have to say here today. Um, The the uh, so you're talking about these creeds. Um, They they were written out of councils, right? After. Mm -hmm when there was a problem discovered, you know, a lot of, a lot of people, a lot of critics uh, say, you know, Oh, we didn't really have the Holy spirit uh, as God till, you know, the year 300 or 500, whatever. Uh, But I've heard you talk about the creeds being responses to um, some of the uh, heresies that were springing up. And then, then you said something I'd never heard before. uh, And I would love for you to talk a little bit about this. Did I hear you right that um, the scriptures, the canon of the scripture came together that was later than the creeds? Yeah, yeah. And, so, and, yeah. yeah, go ahead. So, we have to understand you know, when the canon comes along, it comes, the, the first creed that we're talking about is the Council of Nicaea, which happened at 325 AD. And so, let's, before we sort of get to the canonicity, you know, yeah. the establishing an authority of why we have the scriptures that we have. All right. And the canon's banged out. It goes, I mean, they're putting texts in, they're putting scriptures, they're trying to decide uh, what book of the Bible we should have. We go to understanding that the road to the Trinity, I mean, essentially, Gary, is anything but smooth, okay? So Justin Martyr, and we esteem Justin Martyr, we, we like Justin Martyr, but he referred to the Logos as a second God, the shepherd of Hermes, he considered the son of God as an angel, uh, chief of angel. Um, Origin at times thought of the Trinity in terms of hierarchy of persons. And so we have these church fathers are not, sort of getting it right at the time. Um, and then you have the Arians that come along and they think that the son was uh, something or someone that was inferior to the father. Okay. And so you have this problem with Arianism that develops and in, in thinking that the son is somewhat less, that someone's less than the father. So you have to decide what are you going to do about this? And so we're talking about Arius who's very smart. Um, he's very articulate and he, starts at the time you had the apostles creed and the apostles creed was a statement that essentially affirmed what is the nature of God and can you affirm the nature of God? Uh, so you had to sign that creed essentially to affirm the nature of God. And so Arius comes along real articulate, real smart. He starts saying the right things that would have been okay with the apostles creed. They didn't condemn the, the apostles creed was, wasn't necessarily against what he was saying, right? Okay. But yet what he was saying was wrong. <laughs> and so it was heretical, okay? So they had to add more to the Apostles' Creed. And so this had become such a huge controversy that was taking place. 
uh, in the fourth century that Constantine, the emperor of Rome, he gets involved in this and he says, look, we have to call a council to take place because we need to understand what are we going to do with Arian and what are we going to do with what he's trying to teach about the doctrine of Christ? Because this had to, this was now a Christological battle over what are we going to do with Christ and how is it going to come uh, with the Godhead? And so what ends up happening is that you have the first council of Nicaea that meets and it takes place in, um, in Nicaea and you have an invitation to the bishops of the church that come along and he invites the bishops from Carthage, he invites the bishops from uh, Rome, the bishop from Jerusalem, and they all come together at this time because they want to hammer out what are we going to do with Arianism, okay? And so, and because of that, you end up having the Nicene Creed, and in this Nicene Creed, um, it, they make statements that the son is the same substance as the father, and that's important because in being the same substance as the father and saying that, it takes aim and it blows Arianism out of the water. And because of that, Arius cannot sign that creed because that's not what his doctrine is teaching. So it put Arius out of that. And so from that, we start to develop, what are we going to put inside the canon? And obviously you can't put Shepherd Hermes in there because it doesn't suggest that or anything that is against the Christological hair, uh, that is against what they decided in those councils can't go in the creed because it's non-Trinitarian. So when people say, well, why don't we put certain books in the Bible? Because it's non-Trinitarian. It doesn't affirm the Trinity. Wow, oh, man, that's that's sharp. The um, I had never heard that before, but it uh, it's almost like God gave them some revelation knowledge, some insight first. Uh, you know, not that the creeds are scripture; we don't hold them to the same level of inspiration or authority. But but the God used them to speak into what He would later call uh, on us to, to to see as totally inspired. Uh, the inspiration and the authority of the word of God. So yeah. Uh, and he let, and yeah. And in what you're saying, he left the church to wrestle with it and to, and to bang it out. And I think that that speaks to us today as believers is that we really need to wrestle with scripture. I mean, and yeah. I, there's, I was in Jerusalem. What really changed my life when I was, when I went to Jerusalem one time, the um, tour guide was there and he said something that I never forgot. He said that you, today we look for quick answers, perhaps to a theological issue. We can Google it. We can go online. We can, type in a few keywords and we, we arrive at the answer and we get the answer without having wrestled with it. We're living in, a, in, a, in an age today where you can know something without learning it. You can just simply copy it and just pass information along. And there is a unique difference between being informed, which, would, which, which Google does, and being enlightened. The difference between being informed and being enlightened is being informed means you know something and you're simply able to repeat it. Being enlightened means that you know something is the case, why it is the case, and you're able to articulate it uniquely and distinctly in your context and what you're talking about. And so my, my fear is, is that we have a lot of informed Christians, but a lot of uh, not unenlightened Christians in, in the body of Christ today. They know, but they don't know why they don't. They don't know why it's the case. So they're in an epistemological crisis, meaning that they don't know the theory of why they know because they haven't wrestled with the text. They don't know the reasons for why they know. And so when you send a, a child off to school, he's eating pizza and drinking pop in youth group. You know, he's played video games in youth group. He's been given a basic doctrine, but they've not been taught. They haven't been taught to wrestle with the text. They haven't been taught a theological system. They go off to and find an atheist professor who understands epistemology and how to get behind what they believe and shake the very foundations of why they believe what they believe. They're done. They don't stand a chance. Wow. You're not, that's not necessarily totally talking about the Trinity, but it's important what you're saying. I, I want to, I want you to take us a step further in what you just said. How, how would we move from just Googling and knowing things to really having that 
depth of knowledge that you're talking about? What do we need to do to transition from one to the other? Okay, so if to, to sort of pull it back into what I'm saying about the Trinity, uh, which has to do with the incarnation of Christ, because you know when you talk about the Trinity, you get into Christological. You, you touch on Christology. Okay, it's just that's sort of the next line over from the Trinity is the doctrine of Christology, or vice versa. Um, Saint Athanasius' book on the incarnation is a tremendously powerful book that I it's one of the top five. If you're in Christian thinking and thought theology, this is a book you must read. In my opinion, sixty some pages. You could get a little addition to it. C.S. Lewis, um, who came long after when, when they were restructuring how to word it and reprinting it, he puts a forward in one of the versions and he says in that forward that he never allowed himself to read an, a new book, a contemporary book, without reading an old book after it. So, and he says, if you must just go three books, read three, if you read three contemporary books, but then after that, an old book, three contemporary books, an old book. Three. And he says, because you need to allow the sea breeze, okay, of ancient thinking to blow through your mind. And the reason he says that is because he was concerned about the contemporary filters wherewith we see everything and understand everything. And are we being in, in, in our postmodern society? I have a book on my desk that's arguing right now that we still live in a postmodern world, okay, that we're not post-postmodern. We're still in postmodernity. And in, in postmodernism, we filter everything through a postmodern thinking and postmodern thought, which would suggest, why does it have to be this? Why does it have to be that? Why can't we just say Jesus? Why, why does it have to be the Trinity? And so if you're reading books that have that postmodern filter in it concerning the Trinity, then you're going to probably think, well, the Trinity is not that important. The most important thing is, is that Jesus died on the cross and I accept Jesus and I go to heaven. Boom. Well, that's a product, okay, of modernism, or that could be a product of perhaps more rad, uh, evangel evangelical thinking. But that's, is that really how the church fathers thought? Because the church fathers thought it was so important that as Christians, you wrestled with the doctrine of the Trinity. And so my thinking is, go back and challenge yourself to read the church fathers, Irenaeus against heresies, okay, Origen, okay, against Celsus, all these theological volumes. Um, and, and it's not deep, high-minded thinking. It, it, you could get St. Ath I read St. Athanasius' book just recently again on an airplane a couple of weeks ago um, before I landed. I was flying Dallas, Detroit, an hour and a half, had it done. <laughs> so it's simple. And, and, and you know what was interesting, Gary, is that I was preaching what St. Athanasius had to say about the Trinity and creating the world and in, in the incarnation and how, and I was using some things from that in my sermon that following Sunday. And my church people loved it. And they're like, where did you get that from? St. Athanasius, who's that? <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. So. yeah. I remember uh, reading that and, and the introduction, the, 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 the book's powerful and the introduction that, that stirred my heart, you know, cause I've always felt that way. Read, read the old, I, I like the old, the older uh, writers <clears throat> quite a bit better myself. Um, but he also said there that, um, I, I, can't, I can't remember the exact way he said it, but it was basically, we don't give ourselves enough credit for what we can know. Like you, you can you can read the old writers, you can read Augustine mm -hmm. and, and you can really know what he's saying. Uh, yeah. You know, and uh, sometimes it takes a little longer. Like for me, like I, I read, uh, I've been reading a, a guy named a Puritan writer named Stephen Charnock. And, uh, you know, I, I kind of have to read like five or six pages and I'm going like, I have no idea what he's talking about. No idea what he's talking about. No idea. And then like the sixth page will be like, oh my goodness. Now it all, it just fell together. Like all last five pages that were way over my head. He, he unlocked it with a key, you know? And so there, there's this skill in those. And uh, man, that's, that's a brilliant 
brilliant. But I'm glad you advised it. So what I hear you saying then is that we sort of have to dig a little deeper, take a little more time, be a little more patient, maybe a little more humble. Like we, yeah. we have to know that we really kind of, yeah. we really don't know God like we, we think we know God. It's Absol- a- yeah, absolutely. I mean, perhaps if, let's say a, a, a pastor comes up and he says, today I'm going to preach on the doctrine of the Trinity. And that's what he's going to preach on. And he's going to take, go through the text. He's going to explain how Athanasius argued it. He's going to explain how uh, the church fathers wrestle with the Council of Nicaea, the Council of Ephesus, Council of Constantinople, the Council of Toledo, all the different councils that took place that sort of added layers to that to knock out the heresies and get to the place where the canon is finally settled and the canon is finally developed. Um, you know, I think if you ask me, perhaps the biggest frustration from the, the, the people is not that they're not interested in hearing about the Trinity, but how does this apply to my life? Okay. And so the challenge, I believe that church people that pastors face today is the challenge, which comes from the people, which is immediacy. How does this immediately apply to my life? Yeah, you're right. And, and, and that to me is a problem because the times where I have, really had breakthroughs in not only my thinking, but what it does to, to me spiritually. I don't think you can divide the thinking from the body. I, don't, I, know, I know there's different parts and aspects and components of us, but I don't want to divide those in a sense where I'm a mind over here and I'm against, I don't want to be Gnostic in that sense. Okay. But what it has done to my spiritual life, my thinking, and me as a Christian serving Christ is tremendous. And there isn't always an immediate application for it, right? So what do you do with the doctrine of Trinity? How does this apply to my, my, me, me as a busy father, me as a busy mother, me working my jobs? I'm not sure how it applies, but I can tell you this. The more you learn about the Trinity and the doctrine of God and what it does in redemption, you take that into your prayer life, you take that into your worship life, it charges your life spiritually, and it creates a living reality because you're learning more about the God that you serve and you're learning more about the God that, that you pray to and that in of itself is a tremendous reward. And that changes your life without having some way to the, the pastor to immediately apply it to you. Does it make sense? You know, not only it makes sense, it's, it encourages me deeply because um, some of my mentors that helped me with my preaching, the, 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 the biggest uh, encouragement or sometimes rebuke they give me is like, you didn't apply it. You didn't apply it. And, uh, you know, I think there's a time and place for application, but yeah something about the glory and grandeur and majesty and splendor of God that speaks for itself that yeah. sometimes to apply it cheapens it, you know, and just, yeah. just, to, just to come up on a Sunday and just do nothing but talk about God, you know, and yeah. uh, not to badmouth other churches by any means, but I think there's a lot of quarters that if the pastor were to do that, they, the, a lot of the flock would leave because it's like, you didn't tell me about me today. You didn't yeah. help me increase my finances. You didn't help me uh, be a better husband. You didn't help me make sure my kids are going to get into an Ivy league college by, you know, um, you know, and so it's this, this whole thing of applying it. Now, if you apply it, like, okay, how does this doctrine help you fall on your face? Like Isaiah did and say, I see the Lord high and lifted up the train of his robe fill the temple. Well, then I definitely want to apply it that way. And, and there are yeah. series that you can do on worship, uh, excuse me, on marriage or on finances. But, but I think those even need to point back to why do I want to have good finances? You know, and so I was studying, Chris, I was studying uh, John, the gospel of John recently, and I had never seen this before, but this, there's this trajectory in Christ's ministry that he starts off with a felt need. Uh, oh, your son is 
in trouble throwing themselves on fire. Come on, let me help you. Your eyes are blind. You've been sitting by this pool for so long. You're thirsty. You came here, a woman at the well, to drink water. And he always meets the felt need. But then it's like everybody starts asking him a question. Who is this man that can turn water into wine? And who is this man that can calm the winds and the waves? So, so it's, it's moving away from the felt need into a hunger and a curiosity for, for, for Jesus. Who, who is this guy that can do this? And then the third trajectory Jesus takes him onto is he starts talking, really talks to him about the Trinity. The Father and I are one. When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You know, even Jesus with the woman in the well, you know, he says, if you know who I am, you would, you would, you'd be asking me something different than just physical yeah. water. And, mm -hmm. and so, you know, I, unfortunately, if we're not careful, we camp on the, the felt need. And I don't think that's wrong. Yeah. You know, I think most of the gospels really are about Jesus meeting felt need. Uh, so I, I don't, I'm not bashing that, but it's to take us somewhere. That's really and, a, that's a, that's a tremendous observation. So it starts with the felt need, but there's something behind the felt need. Yeah, he's moving us into something. Yeah. I think it goes to the Trinity. I think it goes to the Godhead. Yeah. I think it goes to the uh, the dual nature, the divinity of Christ and the humanity of Christ. What is that? You know, and, and you talked about that a minute ago. You said, "What's you know the the Trinity Trinitarian theology religion to Christology?" It it, it does. Like, okay, now I have to understand. Okay, there's you know because that that and, and we'll get into that. Uh, you're going to join us for the next episode. And I'll ask you about this if you don't mind talking a little bit about the hypostatic union, uh, uh, just, just how, how Christ, you know, the, 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 the where, where's the man fit into the Trinity, you know, cause if yeah. Jesus is divine, but he's walking around in a body, does that body join the Trinity? Anyway, let's, but uh, we're we'll take a break. And uh, if you, Chris, don't mind joining us for our next, next episode. I love what you're saying. It just, it's stirring my heart. And I think people listening are going to, going to be blessed by it. So, uh, uh, and they can they can find out more about you and your ministry. Do you have like a website? Uh, yeah, they could go to uh, chrispalmer.me and they could find me there. Um, Amazon, they could type in Chris Palmer. They can find my books, my resources. And um, and uh, I have a book called Greek Word Study, a book called Letters from Jesus uh, on the Seven Churches of Revelation. And they could find it there. Excellent. I just, just ordered a Greek Word Studies on Amazon. It came like two days ago. So I'm awesome. excited about getting into that. And uh, also on the... Um, YouTube or Instagram, you have those, those. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Greek for the week on Instagram, just Chris Palmer. And they can see uh, every Wednesday, I put up a little Greek study in one minute um, and give you theology, Greek, et cetera. And uh, it's a lot of fun. So. Is there a double meaning in Greek for the week? Like W E E K and W E A K or did you? Intend yeah. That? Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it, so we did Greek for the week um, because I give you Greek every week. So that's sort of where it began uh, from the start. And so that's why we do usually the, the books, the next book that's coming out, Strange Scriptures, is divided into 52 studies. The first one's divided into 52 studies. So it's one Greek lesson every week. So Greek for the week, every week. It's sort okay. of a, yeah. For some reason, I was thinking of my own, uh, <laughs> uh, my own capacity in Greek, like is Greek <laughs> for the week. <laughs> W-E-A-K, like week in language studies, so, uh, yeah. which would apply to me as well. Chris, it's, thank you so much. Yeah. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Are you going to say something? No, it's all good. We'll, we'll, hit, we'll get together on the next podcast. Very good. Thanks, Chris. God bless. The Gary Wilkerson Podcast is brought to you by World Challenge, transforming lives through the message and mission of Jesus Christ. Each week, this podcast reaches thousands of listeners. This critical work is made possible by the generous contributions of individuals like you who believe in World Challenge's mission. Thank you for listening and supporting.